Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. From MCIE. There are times when an interview is just so good that it's almost impossible to find what to edit out or leave in. And this is one of those times. Earlier this year in March, we published the unedited version of our interview with author of uh, Punished by Rewards, Alfie Cohn. And to date, it has been the most listened to episode of the year. And I think there's a reason for that. A lot of you like longer podcast episodes. So for today's podcast with Michael McSheehan, we're going to do something a little different. My name is Tim Viegas. And you are listening to the Think Inclusive podcast presented by MCIE. This podcast exists to build bridges between families, educators, and disability rights advocates to create a shared understanding of inclusive education and what inclusion looks like in the real world. To find out more about who we are and what we do, check us out at thinkinclusive.us or on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Also, take our podcast listener survey. Your responses will help us develop a better podcast experience. Go to bit.ly slash TI podcast survey to submit your responses. We would really appreciate it. Today on the podcast, we interview systems change expert, Michael McSheehan. We talk about what started him on his journey for advocating for inclusive education, his work with SWIFT schools, the connections between multi-tiered systems of support and universal design for learning, and if he agrees with the statement, inclusion done badly is still better than segregation. His answers might surprise you. We're so glad you're listening. And now, our interview with Michael McSheehan. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, just do an intro, and then we'll get right in. So today on the podcast, we have Michael McSheehan, who is the owner and lead technical assistance provider at Evolve and Effect LLC, 
assisting education agencies to evolve their systems with focus and utilize teaching and learning practices that result in a positive effect for students. Michael currently works around the country assisting schools, districts, state departments of education to improve education for all students and implement MTSS and UDL. Michael's interest in school and district improvement began with learners with significant disability labels and has evolved through his collaboration with other leaders. Welcome to the Think Inclusive podcast, Michael. Thanks for having me, Tim. I'm very excited to be here. Likewise, we are, we're excited to have you on. So um, there's, a, there's so many things I want to ask you, Michael, <laughs> but I think well, the, just jump right in, the first thing I want to know is, you know, you've been advocating it for inclusive education for a long time. So, you know, what has your journey been like as an educator and an inclusive, an inclusive education advocate? Have you always had this vision for inclusive education like you do now? Like, tell us a little bit about your journey. Okay. Um, you know, it all started <laughs> in one class in undergraduate um, when I was uh, taking my first intro to exceptionality class um, at the University of New Hampshire. Gosh, now 35 plus years ago. Um, and, you know, there I sat in this class. It was my first introduction to people with disabilities. And the professor in the class was really good at bringing in guest people to teach the course. And we had been reading about people with significant disabilities, but I never met anybody with a significant disability. So I had no preconceived idea of what things were going to be like as we were starting to learn about people with significant disabilities until one class when the professor, Jim Nisbet, had a guest come in and I saw him waiting to come into class and he had a wheelchair and he had a person supporting him and he had a guide dog and I could see physically, he looked different. And I thought, aha, this is a person with a significant disability. This, I'm finally gonna, gonna meet somebody. Um, and I thought at that time that she would give the lecture about him. Not for one second when I laid eyes on him, did I think he was about to give the course lecture. Uh, and sure enough, he rolled in and he pulled out this big green plastic letter and word board because he made sounds, but most people could not understand what he was saying. And he proceeded to give the lecture. And I, Tim, I was blown away. I was beside myself. I didn't know what to do. All I knew was whatever this thing was that was happening in front of me, it was something I had to get my head around. And how is it I'm about 20 years old, and I've never had this experience. I was, um, I was upset. <laughs> I, was, I was upset. I was like, how, how have I not ever met anybody with a disability before? Um, so that was the beginning of my journey. Um, and then trying to understand how that happened. How did I not know people with disabilities? And did some... Um, as I proceeded in my coursework, uh, I came across uh, this legal case called the Timmy W. case. 
um, from the late 80s. And it's based on this town, Rochester, New Hampshire. And that's my hometown. And Rochester, New Hampshire had gone to the the vets, gone to the courts to say that Timmy W. is too severely disabled to benefit from public education. And so that let me know, you know, my hometown, my school system where I grew up had invested in excluding Timmy W. and really fought through a series of court cases to keep him out of school. Um, so that helped me understand why I'd never met anybody. My school was segregating kids with significant disabilities. And I just felt in my bones that that was wrong. It was wrong for Timmy W. It was wrong for me. Um, it was just wrong. <laughs> just all kinds of wrong. Um, so, you know, as I did my first intro classes, I had professors who said, this is how life should be. People should be included in their neighborhood schools. So I didn't, as I learned about education, that was the message that I learned and that made perfectly good sense to me. Um, so from that point forward, all of my work has somehow hunkered in on that question of, are we including more and more kids in our neighborhood schools? Um, I studied speech-language pathology. I wanted to be a speech pathologist when I grew up. And um, after my experience in that classroom, I was most interested in augmentative and alternative communication and people who were non-speaking. Um, and so in my graduate studies, I developed a focus on augmentative communication. And when I got out of grad school, that was the work I did was working with individuals who were non-speaking, getting communication systems in place for them, helping them get included in their neighborhood schools. And the more and more I did one kid at a time work, the more and more I saw there was a systemic problem um, that was happening in schools. They weren't they weren't ready <laughs> and they, they didn't know what to do. And, you know, here I saw these great, good-hearted educators and administrators and family members who wanted good things for their kids, but just didn't know how to make that happen. Um, so that really became my focus. How do we help educators, administrators, family members make this happen in their local schools? Um, and I've come at it from a number of different vantage points over the years from doing work in alternate assessment and, you know, student-specific planning models, and then moving out to more systems change projects um, and uh, working with, you know, through one of my most recent um, partnerships on a systems change project situated us with the Swift Education Center. If you're, I think that you're familiar with the Swift Education yes. Center. <laughs> yes. And I started working with them when the center was formed, and we had the great opportunity to work with five different states, 16 school districts, 64 schools around the country to look at a school-wide framework to transform education such that all kids were included in their neighborhood schools and were thriving, right? Not just physically there, but having a sense of belonging and thriving in that, in that local environment. Um, and so that pushed me, quite honestly, because I had kind of always, with the, with the one student at a time work, I was always pushing for more and more time in the general education classroom. And the experience with the Swift Education Center allowed me to step back to say, well, if we rearranged 
some of these school-wide structures, all kids might learn in a variety of places. And if everybody's learning in a variety of places, then all of those places are general education places. If we get rid of those labels and we just look at what space, resources, materials we have available, it's a different conversation than, is my child in the general ed, the general ed classroom, you know, 80 plus percent of the day? It becomes, how are we all structured for all kids to learn in a variety of ways and places? So short answer, yes, this has kind of always been my vision and my work. Um, and that has evolved as I get new understandings. Sure. Um, I'm glad you brought up Swift uh, because I remember as being a um, special education teacher and learning about Swift and kind of not really being able to wrap my head around what was happening. I just knew that something exciting was happening, right? And I, I remember in, when I was in the classroom just saying, you have to look at Swift. You have to see what this, what, what's happening here and, and, and all this. Um, uh, but I did have questions. I'm not sure if I actually put this in here, but let's just let's just run with it. Um, let's roll with it. So, with you, know, as you were implementing in all these different schools, like how how different um, how how different was the uh, it to implement because. You know, the traditional how we've been doing it for years is IEPs, placement, you know, 80%, right? We're looking at all these numbers and stuff. Um, when you were implementing Swift, was that just not like, did you have to work within the constraints of um, IDEA? Or was it something else? Did you like kind of transcend that? Does that make sense? Uh, I, I think I understand your question. We can have some back and forth as I answer okay. it. And let me know if I'm, I'm giving you what you're, you're asking about here. Um, you know, IDEA stands as it is. We, we, we did not have permission to like <laughs> rewrite federal law while we're doing this project. Oh, darn. Um, th th that unfortunately was, you know, just not within our, our abilities. Um, although we did push. Um, to say that, you know, the braiding of a variety of funding sources and the, the braiding of policy and centering on good general education is important in the work. Um, so we were in a constant conversation with policy folks about that. Um, I think what implementing the, what the work of the SWIFT Center helped me get my head around was the importance of coordinating across state, district, and school arenas. That it is difficult for an individual school to transform if the other schools in the district aren't also open to that change or at least willing to create space for that change. And it's challenging for a district to do something very different in a state if there's not, again, support and space for that, that difference. Um, so I think one of my big takeaways in, in terms of kind of shifting my understanding, evolving my efforts around inclusive education was the importance of coordinating across all of those arenas of work. Um, it did not 
moved me away from the importance of kids with disabilities being in general education settings. Um, I have seen people, so let me provide this context. The SWIFT Center's framework at the time that I was working with them, I, I can't speak to their most recent work, but for the five years that, six years that I worked with them, the framework has MTSS, multi-tiered system of support, as the kind of heart of the instructional anchor for the framework with other domains of work like administrative leadership and district policy, staffing arrangements, all of those things supporting the work in MTSS. With MTSS at the heart of it, I continue to see that if students were spending tremendous amounts of time outside of general ed settings and the engagement with good, high quality general instruction, they're not making the same kind of progress that they would otherwise make. So it reinforced for me that any additive model of education where everybody gets this first best teach and then we provide something in addition to that has to hold true that all kids are engaged in that first best instruction or else you're trying to just intervene your way, intervene the kid out of some kind of struggle without maintaining the base of support for learning. And that learning is not just about the content standards. Um, it's about being part of a community of learners. And that was definitely reinforced for me in the SWIFT work, um, that if we don't preserve that sense that I have of I belong in this school, I belong in this classroom. Right? When I arrive in the morning, I don't first go to some other classroom and then kind of drop in and out of this general ed classroom. I'm a core member of that general ed classroom that has to be preserved. I may have gone off track from what your question no, was. That, yeah, <laughs> it, I, I think um, I think you answered it. Um, more eloquently than I certainly asked the question. <laughs> I wanna, I wanna, uh, um, my other question, because uh, you, you kind of talked about MTSS, um, is, well, let me, let, me, let me ask that at the end, because I, what okay. I want to do is, since, since we, we rolled, we kind of talked about MTSS is, um, how you can help explain how MTSS and UDL fit together because some people may not know that they do. You know, they may have heard of MTSS and heard of UDL, but what's the connection? It's a, it's a great question. Um, we have three hours for this podcast, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> three I'll, minutes. I'll try, to, I'll try to do the short version, three minutes for this answer. <laughs> um, so this is, and I want to be very transparent here. My understanding of UDL has dramatically changed over the past few years um, under the the mentorship of Louis Lord Nelson, who is just a universal design for learning guru. Um, and she and I have been working together on how do these two things truly braid together? And so MTSS and UDL are both frameworks for teaching and learning. 
They both provide a structure, a set of guiding beliefs and principles for teaching and learning. They provide a set of tools for learner and teacher success. UDL centers on variability, the, the kind of acceptance that the notion of average is a myth is often said within the UDL community. It centers on student voice and it centers on removing barriers, right? So if I expect all kids will learn X in this lesson, the end of the lesson, when I ask, did some students not learn that or did some students not fully engage or have a sense that they even belonged in this lesson, then I as the teacher back up and I ask, okay, well, what were the barriers? Let me let me remove those barriers. And the more barriers I remove, the easier it is for all of my kids to engage and learn. MTSS centers on preventing failure, preventing a struggle, and having a rapid response if students look like they are at risk of struggling. So MTSS is going to organize from the beginning to say, Let's get some kind of a measure at, uh, of all of our learners in different areas, academics, behavior, social, emotional learning, who might be at risk of some kind of a struggle here, and let's get some things in place for them quickly. You bring those two things together. If you truly braid them well, you can have a system for teaching and learning that is very proactive and very responsive to the true variability of learners that we have in our neighborhood schools. Where you're not differentiating after the fact, but you're always asking the design question up front over and over again. How can I design my school? How can I design the environment for teaching and learning? How can I design this lesson with this curriculum, the goals, the methods, the materials, in a way that all of my students will be able to engage? And that means, as you'll hear with kind of quick UDL lingo, creating multiple ways for students to engage in learning, providing multiple ways for students to take in and receive information, and providing multiple ways for them to then demonstrate their learning and their understanding for you. Um, and then continue to up the game with more options based on who your learners are. So in short, UDL and MTSS both bring a framework for teaching and learning. They both provide a set of tools to educators. I think of UDL as kind of the foundation for the house, right? We're built on understanding the true variability of all of our learners and centering on student voice. And then MTSS are like the walls and the rooms and the elevator that we might need for some, like it's then the structures for decision-making about how to kind of carry out that, that vision of, of centering on students' voice. That help. I like that. Kayla, can you make that into an infographic? <laughs> and I want to acknowledge, like, I have seen places that are fully implementing MTSS, like to the T, right? They've got their screening, they've got their collaborative teams, they've got their database decision making, they're monitoring. And students are excluded. 
students with disabilities are excluded from the system. I don't see that as much with schools who are fully implementing UDL. I think in part because of that centering on students' voice and the importance of all those voices being in, in the system. I don't know exactly why, mm. but I, see, I still see kids excluded in schools that are doing MTSS. Uh, I mean, yes, absolutely. Um, I, it, do you have a sense of um, like how many schools, you know, are implementing? And I'm not saying the fidelity or anything, because I, I mean, there's a whole like, you know, <laughs> level, right? But just like... <laughs> Just like what do you have an idea? Like uh, even if it's like the majority, I mean, I would guess the majority of schools are not implementing MTSS. Although I would say this is just, and, you know, I don't know if this is true or not, but I would say that the majority of states at least have MTSS in there somewhere, right? That like, hey, we're doing MTSS. And, and that's where it's hard to answer the question, Tim. Mm. Um, because there have been a wide array of ways that MTSS has been described across the country. Um, and because we don't, you know, we're not all using the same ways of measuring it. It's hard to say who's really doing it or not. Mm. Um, I see particular practices that are very widespread. So the notion of trying to get an early measure on how all kids are doing at the beginning of the year, this thing we've called screening, um, which needs to be a screening process, not just a screening assessment. Um, mm. Like I see that very widespread. I see many more schools looking closely at data now to make decisions, um, which is exciting. Uh, to see those two things so widespread. I still do not see the level of collaboration that is required for full implementation of MTSS. I don't see it in leadership teams. I don't see it in teacher teams, uh, in the majority of schools um, that might say that they're do doing MTSS. Right. I put that in, in air quotes. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, um, well, the collaborate, the, like screening is e not easy, but it, it seems easier than having to figure out how teachers are going to collaborate with each other. Right. Because you well, have, you yeah. have, um, you know, screen, there's tools. That that, right. that that schools use like they, there are technical things you can put in place that will make it look like we are screening. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Whether we, or not well, it's authentic a, or not. We have a screening measure in reading. We have a screening measure in math. We must be doing screening. Right. Um, right. Right. In the same way that you can say, well, we have all of these times for teams to meet. Mm. Doesn't mean that those teams are truly collaborating. Right. So right. I administer a screening tool. Well, that's. That's great. Now, what do we do with that is what, what matters. Right. Right. And right. for the kids who couldn't access that, that tool, how are you coming back around to get a picture of where they're at? 
Um, right. So, and that's where we need to create, protect, support, hold up, love educators and their collaboration time. We just, you know, first place we draw from when we need time in schools is we take it away from teachers planning with one another. And, you know, you get a bunch of good teachers in a room, you give them the time and the space for good thinking, they're going to come up with great stuff. Right. Yeah. Teachers are, are, are amazing people. Teachers rock. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I, when I first was it, when I first got my first teaching job, um, uh, I, you know, didn't know what to expect, obviously. So, you know, being in a room with educators, some veterans, right. Um, it, everywhere I've ever been, uh, teachers are collaborators are, are, are collaborative everywhere, you know, and, and the people get the teachers get a bad rap because of, you know, summers off and blah, 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 teachers unions, yada, yada, yada. Right. Um, but there's, I've met very, very, I mean, the vast majority of teachers are just, they're in it because they love kids. <laughs> so why can't we support them to do the thing that they love? Right. Um, Would, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to. Yeah. I'll just. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll wait for the question before I go to that, <laughs> that, that spiel. But go ahead. Well, let's. Okay. Let's talk about barriers. So, um, you know, what do you think is the biggest barrier to systems change in schools? <sighs> Us. <laughs> <laughs> Us as in humans. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, adults that are leading the change process right now, and, and uh, you know, I'll include me, <laughs> um, right? How we're going about it, I think, is part of the problem. Um, you know, if we approach this like we're asking a favor, will you please include this kid? We're, we're missing it. We're missing it. We need to both kind of warmly demand, but at the end of the day, expect the change. And I think we have accepted incrementalism and kind of this, well, we're not quite ready to change yet, which means you haven't had the experience of what it feels like when you include a kid with a disability in your classroom. All the general educators I've ever worked with, once they have that first moment of oh my gosh, I can reach Jack. Like, I am now connected with Jack. And Jack was a student I never knew I could connect with. That teacher's on fire for the rest of the year. They're good. They need that moment. But if we're always in this getting ready for the change thing, and we never put the kids physically in the room, people don't get those great experiences. Right? Um, the other piece I would say, the other big barrier I would point to, well, actually, let me fill out that thought to say, I don't, one of the barriers is we haven't focused on general educators enough. Mm. We, we need to lift up general educators as leaders. There are general teachers who are doing amazing things. And we keep trying to come in the special ed door and we're missing it. This is a general education problem. This is not a special education problem. 
We need to support some, some of the great things that are happening in general education and just blast them out there because there are wonderful things happening. Um, we're actually trying a new approach this year in New Hampshire. We've started a statewide project. Our State Department of Ed is behind it. And uh, I'm partnering with a, a classroom teacher. He's an amazing general educator who is now an independent consultant. And we're working with 12 different schools around the state of New Hampshire, 12 different sites. Some of them will be districts. And our focus is general educators and high quality in general instruction. That's the endeavor. And it's going to result in, and the, the focus is, how do we do high-quality instruction with learners with disabilities in mind and in our classrooms? We haven't invested there well enough, I think. So, the, And the last barrier I just want to point to is, is leadership is a huge, it's a huge barrier at the local level, um, right? It, it takes that principal, that superintendent, that associate superintendent for curriculum and instruction who's set for teaching and learning who says, you know, I want this to happen. And to have a sustained presence with that passion and clear-headed leadership that really recognizes when it's time to transform the system versus when it's time to improve the system. And to have the, the wherewithal, the, the will um, to dismantle stuff as much as they want to build stuff. When there are strong, clear-headed leaders who have a sustained presence in a school or a district who get it and are moving it, it's more likely to happen. But when we have turnover with those leaders and we have to say goodbye to them from our districts or our schools, things fall apart. Hmm. So what about um, this idea that Inclusion that's done badly is better than segregation. So, <sighs> and I, I think this fits with what we just talked about because you, you, we have situations where, you know, for, for whatever reason, we, you know, whether it's a, a family or an educator who is just like, this is happening, right? Uh, but people aren't ready. And it's a, it's a horrible experience for everyone. And then that gets labeled as this is inclusion and it didn't work. Right. So is it really that that situation is better than if the student would have just been in the segregated special ed classroom? This is a hard question. I don't like this, Tim. I do not like this question. Well, um, I, I'm and, sorry. And it, it, it's, it's right in the heart of, of the real challenge here. Um, no, inclusion done badly is not better than segregation, in, in my opinion. And let me give you at least one student example as to why I now believe that. Uh, I like stories. Um, I'm... I got to find an, a, a pseudonym for him. We'll call him Andy. <laughs> okay. um, I was working with Andy two years ago in his local K-8 school, rural school, small, small overall student population, maybe three, 400 students, K-8, to right? So not big. Um, and Andy was having a series of meltdowns every day his sensory needs, he was getting totally overloaded. 
his attention needs were not being met. Um, quite frankly, some of the teaching wasn't all that gripping, shall we say, and was not based on his interests. And at the age that he was, his interests were really important to him. <laughs> um, and if you're not on my interests, I'm not sure that I'm with you. Um, and when that would happen, he would start to act out. Things would get thrown, people would get hit. And the school community really rallied. I mean, they tried everything that they had the capacity to try. They had limits on their capacity. There was more I wanted them to do. There were different things I wanted to help them do. And they, they just weren't positioned to do them. So by the end of probably a good five-month, six-month process of trying stuff out, Andy was going into school every day and would end up at some portion of the day in the conference, teacher's conference room, secluded from everybody, or sent home. Which meant every day Andy was getting traumatized again. Right? Every day he was being told, you can't make it here. Just by the sheer action of needing to keep him and others physically safe. So, you know, if I have to trade off repeated trauma and harm for a child with a separate place for that child, at least to get him out of crisis, I I'm going to go with the separate place. We found a separate special ed school for Andy. We visited several and there were several there was no way I would have allowed him to to enter. We found one that where the the educators I think really got his needs and his dynamics and last it took us a few months to find a place and make the transition. Um, of course then we had a little pandemic so he was on remote learning anyway. When they came back, uh, he started back in late January, early February to in-person. Since that time, he reports loving school. He's happy when he comes home. He's developing friends. He's being invited to meet up with his friends. He's grown two years in reading achievement levels. He's gone up two grade levels in reading. That's huge for him. Now, as we've entered this year, we've put on the table, if he continues to thrive in this way, we need to have a conversation about a transition plan for him to come back to the neighborhood school. And everybody's okay with that being on the table, but it needs to be really thoughtful. So yes, I think if you're in crisis, there are times when you've got to get away and you've got to get yourself out of crisis. And the family needs to get out of crisis as well. Um, and then we work on doing it better next time. I think, I think that's what people need to hear, Michael. I think that's what educators need to hear. Um, especially the ones that like my, like myself, when I was, when I was a, a teacher in a school that, you know, still, had special education classrooms, which by the way, I think I have this in one of our questions. The, the majority of schools are that way, <laughs> you know? So let me get to that in just a second. But I, I do sure. think, I do think that, um, 
also people who are hesitant to buy in to inclusive education or even even think about what would it look like for students with disabilities you know any kind of disability to be included in in uh, regular classrooms in order for them to even think about it it immediately goes to well what about andy it doesn't work for andy you know but i think that and i don't want to put words in your mouth michael but i think that what andy experienced right wasn't actually inclusion it was they had andy in that class but andy wasn't supported no it, and and there was there was um there wasn't pressure in the system of education to say to that school, you have to figure this out. You have to create a safe space in your building where kids can go and unpack if they need to, right? To, to de-escalate, to regroup, to, you know, just take the time that I need. He needed that safe space. He also needed certain environments that were structured differently for him. And there there wasn't the pressure in the system to force the school to have to go to that next level. They had the staff that they had, and that's all the staff that they had. Now, had you know, sure, the family could have, and and trust me, the state disability rights organization was involved in this situation, and we had conversations of you know, do we press this from a legal perspective? and force the school to actually put in place the supports that would be a movement toward inclusive education. Well, yes, we would love to put the pressure on the system and, and do that change work. Meanwhile, we have Andy here mm -hmm. and Monday's coming. Right. And he, he needs to have a place where he can feel safe and connected for learning. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think the pressures on the system are still not strong enough, clear enough. Um, I, don't, I think I may have gone off from your question, but no, I was no, liking that, what I was saying, so no, I'm just happy to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, where did I have that question? Maybe I just thought I, I wrote it down. Okay. Oh, yeah, you know, it's here. Is it so... Uh, I, it, the question is, is it fair to say that the majority of school districts are not implementing inclusive practices? <laughs> yes, that is a fair statement. That's a fair statement. The majority of school districts in the United States are not implementing <laughs> inclusive practices. And, and I would tag on there, especially for the kids with the most significant disabilities, right? That population of learners, kids with autism, Down syndrome, um, any kid who needs augmentative and alternative communication, right? They're the, the fastest to get pulled out if they've ever had the opportunity to be in. Um, and to be with other classmates without disabilities. Um, yes, I think it's fair to say the majority of places are not doing that. That would actually be a kind way to say it. Okay, yeah. Um, well, then here, here's a follow-up to that. Okay. If, if this is the state of education and the vast majority of, of schools, so like people like you and I, we're way in the minority here. Like we're just, you know, it's a, it's a small world that we live in. 
<laughs> that, that, so if that's the case, right, then how, like, we, we've made very little progress. We've made progress, you know, um, certainly, you know, because of uh, case law and advocacy and, and systems change and everything like that. But, um, you know, what's the next step here, Michael? Like, where do we need to go in order to really make change? Oh, if I were only in control of the world. <laughs> you know, part of this is, is a willingness to acknowledge all the things that we have tried to support the change process, right? There have been tens of millions of dollars poured into projects federally at state levels to help schools and districts move this work forward. And we still have a really short list of places in this country that we would say are truly fully built on inclusive principles and practices. And I think there, there I think that there's a couple of things that we could do differently going forward. <laughs> um, and and I, I want to be cautious here to say that I'm going to speak from a system and a policy perspective. This is not about individual teachers, because I think individual teachers, given the right supports, can do incredible things. The, the system is fundamentally broken. The policy is fundamentally problematic. Right. Our current policy in IDEA, which is the one that we continue to anchor on in this conversation, is civil rights legislation. And so often in education, we do not actually interact with that law as civil rights law. We interact with it as kind of educational guidance for kids with disabilities. And that that needs to shift. And I think part of the shift of how we view that policy and act on that policy comes one, from changing part of the policy where we have this enforcement of a continuum of placements or a perception of continuum of placements that have to be explored and available. And we don't have, we have insufficient accountability for actually trying supplementary aids and services in the general ed setting before placing anybody else out of that classroom. So I think there's some policy changes that have to happen with IDEA. That said, if we glance over to Brown versus the Board of Education, when that, when those, in that time period, we weren't saying to teachers, are you ready to teach a student of color? How can we help you get ready to teach students of color? We said, this is a civil rights issue. These students will now have access to these schools. We changed all kinds of things to say, this is going to happen. Strong, clear message to all schools and districts across the country. This is going to happen to the point where, and I don't remember which branch of the, the um, armed services this was, National Guard, I think, was called out to say, we're sending in the National Guard to make sure that kids have access. Mm. 
that's really different than how we've approached inclusive education. We've tried to help people slowly change and you know, build their ability to teach kids with disabilities. And I think we need greater pressure on the system than that. Um, you know, financial incentives are fine. That's fine. You can fiscally incentivize including kids with disabilities. But if you don't back it up with, no, really, we mean you're going to have to teach kids with disabilities and that they have to have experienced general ed settings first. Um, if we don't have that level of accountability, it, it, we're going to be right where we are now, 20 years from now, right? The, the flat line of exclusion for kids with the most significant disabilities will be maintained. That line has not moved substantially in 20 to 30 years. Those numbers have not substantially changed. So there needs to be different pressure on the system. You know, I, I think it's time for us to get, get mad, get loud, um, and, and say this has to shift because um, the, the current approach is insufficient. So, you know, the both end, if you're going to have that level of accountability, then also be ready to provide support to the teachers who are going to have to make it work because they can, they can do it. I like it, Michael. Let's start a revolution. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yes, <laughs> let's. I'm not, I'm not really kidding. <laughs> no, I'm with you. I'm with you. And I'll, you know, and I will gladly show up on Monday with the school and roll up my sleeves and help make it work. Right. Like I, I think with any level of, if we're going to up the level of accountability, we've got to be ready to up the level of support. And I think we can do it. Absolutely. Um, so look, we got about 10 more minutes. So, okay. uh, one more question. And then I want to know, I want to ask the fun question. Okay. <laughs> Cause I like to, I like, I just, it's, it's my show. So I get to do things. You, Michael. you do. It's your call, man. <laughs> All right. So, um, we can, do you have an example of, you know, what an inclusive school looks like, you know, feels like, smells like kind of stuff like that? Uh, yes. <laughs> it doesn't have to be real, I yes. guess. Be, I mean, no, the, no, no, the no. Thing I, is, I like real. Okay. I like real. All right. Let's stay with real. Um, you know, with that question, I, I struggle to want to like describe it or put it in words because I think it's a, a much more rich experience to see it. Right. So my first part of my response is to say, check out the videos that are available online that have, I think, been really well, really well produced to capture what it could actually look like and what it has actually looked like in schools in the United States in really different states around our country. So there are three Swift Education Center videos that I will point to, the Together video, the Whatever It Takes video, and the Swift Features at Henderson School video. The first two videos, Together and Whatever It Takes, capture classroom experiences, school-wide experiences in schools from Maryland, Mississippi, Oregon, really different places that are making great things happen for kids, right? So you, you see 
and you, you feel in the videos the level of investment that leadership has, right? You see the assistant superintendent in Cecil County, Maryland, say, you know, this is the right thing to do. And when we bring kids together and support them well and support the teachers well, great things happen. When we hold high expectations, kids reach up to them. You see a building level principal who says, my guiding thought is if it's good for kids, then we should be doing it, right? You, you hear the voices, you see kids saying things like one of the middle school students in that same video <laughs> who says segregating kids with autism is like apartheid. If this were, you know, if this were a school only for kids with autism, I would feel really sad. So when a kid with autism tells you I want to be included, listen. And I think that's part of what an inclusive school looks like. It's listening really hard and very carefully. Um, and then building and rebuilding the teaching and learning structures to respond to the students that are in front of them, right? We, you see in those videos a real strong sense of community. Um, you see learners coming and going from a variety of places in the building. Um, you see not only people allowing kids to learn in different ways or to learn at different rates, but celebrating that. Um, so first I would watch those videos if I were anybody in your, in your audience right now um, to, to get a feel for what that looks like and, and, and feels like um, and, and what's possible at the teacher move level, at the student friendship level, as well as at that upper administrative level. I like, we'll put those in the, we'll, we'll put them in the show notes. That'd be great. Um, and uh, direct links to them. And, and uh, they're great videos. They're they great. really are. They are. There are, you know, th those three videos together are probably the, the three that I go to the most when people say, what, what can this look like? Mm. And then allowing them to, yeah, but the video. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Just, right. To like ask all your hard questions because I, I we often will shut down the hard conversations mm. in the change process. And those hard conversations are the best place for growth. Right. So I have some New Hampshire educators who have said to me, well, you know, we just can't afford to do inclusive education. And I cue up the Swift film where I've got a Mississippi principal talking about their annual income of around $19,000 a year per family and how they're making it work in Mississippi. And I'm like, okay, so now let's talk about how you use your resources um, right. here in New Hampshire. Right. Um, and, and tell me what, what would be, what, what is it you think you need? And let's, let's unpack it further. Right. But, but stepping into those hard conversations is sweet. That is the sweet spot for the change. Sorry, I went way off. No, I like it. I like it. Um, okay. Is there any, before I ask you about, you know, what kind of recharges you and stuff like that, um, is there anything else you wanted to mention? Just that you're like, oh, man. 
I really wanted to talk about that. <laughs> um, just briefly, one of your questions was about why should administrators want to do this work mm. from, an, from an, the administrative perspective? And aside from, you know, hopefully as an administrator, you're coming to the table wanting to do well by kids. Um, you know, I'll talk in numbers sense, return on investment, man. Like your, the return on your investment as a school leader with your school budget by building up inclusive communities in your schools and across your entire system, you're going to get so much more back than just student learning outcomes, which are also going to go up, you're going to have a community of support in your local town if you invest in, in inclusive schools. Um, return on investment is where it's at, administrators. Pay attention here. If you shift your resources to this value, you will get so much more back. Thank you. You're Thank welcome. you for bringing that up. I appreciate that. Um, all right. So, Michael, tell me what what recharges <laughs> you? What how do you keep on going? <laughs> what do you do to just, you know, bring the joy? Yeah. Um, quite. Uh, I'll, I'll be completely honest. And, and I didn't actually write this in my notes in preparation for this interview. So I'm just going there with you. Okay. Uh, quite honestly, I feel like this work for me is, is a calling. I, I love it. I get charged up by being in hard conversations. I get charged up by, you know, getting a eight o'clock at night call from a colleague across the country who needs to talk through a challenge that they're having. Like that, that does feed my soul because I know one more kid's included. I know one more school is, is taking that step, which means one less kid is excluded and feeling alone in the world. That does charge me up. Um, all work then aside, <laughs> my family and friends rock. I, I love, you know, going to camp, seeing my parents, sitting around, just hearing about camp politics and the camp activity. Like if it's playing cards with my parents, like I love my family. I think they're great. Um, and I have very regular time with all of my friends. Even if it's over Zoom, right? I have friends that I like to have breakfast with and we'll do Zoom breakfasts now. Um, <laughs> and, awesome. you know, you got to stay connected with folks. I also really love dancing. Anybody who knows me knows I love dancing. Country Western dancing in particular, two-step, West Coast swing, East Coast swing, line dancing, all of it. I love it. Um, bird watching is another favorite thing. My house is um, a little tiny house. Um with about 18 other houses in this area, but they're technically condos. And we sit on about 209 acres of this great rural wooded area. Um, and there's amazing wildlife here. And I can sit on my back deck and see a black bear, a porcupine, a skunk, deer, and hundreds of different kinds of birds. And I just love sitting out there taking in the wildlife. It does. It just feeds me. That sounds fantastic. Oh, 
have you have you seen the movie The Big Year, Michael? I have not seen the movie. Oh the Big my Year. gosh! Do I need to see this movie? It's about birding. Oh really? Yes. Excellent. Yeah, it's in it has a it has Owen Wilson, Jack Black. Okay. Is it Jack Black? I feel like it's Jack Black. Um, Steve Martin. It's amazing. Well, the casting definitely works for me. Yeah, yeah. You need to see it. And um, uh, my wife and I saw it, I don't know, years ago. And it's it's PG. And so we were looking for a family movie one night. And and um, I have <clears throat> I have like a, a, a 15, 12 and nine year old. And wow. and so and so uh, we're like, let's watch the big year, you know, <laughs> And uh, fully expecting my kids to just completely lay like, oh, my gosh, this why did they watch me you and know, make me watch this movie? But everyone loved it and were just riveted. You need to see it. OK. And you need to you need to see it as someone who appreciates wildlife and birding okay. and stuff like that. I, I think that you would enjoy it. There you go. I'll add it to the list. Yeah, add it to the list. Yeah, I know. We all have a long list. <laughs> all right well we're we're just about out of time um did you want to plug anything michael like i know that you have evolve and effect but is there you know how people can get a hold of you you're on the twitter you know blah 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 I, i'm on twitter at mc mcshean mc mc s h e e h a n you can follow me on twitter i am um shall we say, an intermittent shiny object tweeter. So you will not find sustained tweets from me. I go through fits and spurts. Um, you, I'm in the process of setting up a business Facebook page, so soon there will be an Evolve and Effect uh, Facebook page. Um, but for now, you can visit the website, Evolve and, and spell out A-N-D, Evolve and Effect, E-F-F-E-C-T dot com. Um, you can check out some videos that I'm in on that website. You can read up on some of the work that I'm doing, see where I'm going to be next. Um, and, you know, folks, be on the lookout because this project that we're doing in, in New Hampshire that's focused on general educators, on the other side of that project next June, we're going to have stories to tell. And we're going to have general educators that have great exemplars of teaching practice that we are going to hold up and shine brightly around this country. Well, we are excited to hear about that. So that sounds like, Michael, you're going to be a recurring guest. I, I think we see a return coming. Yes. All right. All right. Well, Michael, it was a pleasure having you on the podcast. I appreciate it. Don't. So, OK, I forgot to mention this. Don't go. I'm going to sign off, but don't hang up. Yeah. OK. <clears throat> uh, Michael McSheehan, thank you for being on the Think Inclusive podcast. We appreciate your time. That will do it for this episode of the Think Inclusive podcast. Subscribe to the Think Inclusive podcast via Apple Podcasts, the Anchor app, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a question or comment? Email us at podcast at thinkinclusive.us. We love to know that you're listening. Thank you to patrons Veronica E., Sonia A., Pamela P., Mark C., Kathy B., and Kathleen T. for their continued support of the podcast. When you become a patron, your contribution helps us with the cost of audio production, transcription, and promotion of the Think Inclusive podcast. And you could even get a shout out like the fine people we just mentioned. 
Go to patreon.com slash thinkinclusivepodcast to become a patron today and get access to all of our unedited interviews. Thank you for helping us equip more people to promote and sustain inclusive education. This podcast is a production of MCIE, where we envision a society where neighborhood schools welcome all learners and create the foundation for inclusive communities. Learn more at mcie.org. We will be back in a couple of weeks to talk with Jenna Rufo about what it means to reimagine special education. Thanks for your time and attention. Until next time, remember, inclusion always works. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.